Episode 6, Battle of the Atlantic. Hillsize waves crash into the ship, black and cold. He braces as the vessel pitches. His gloved hand grabs onto a frozen rail. He saw a man go over once, into the icy waters of the North Atlantic. It was night then too. The man was never found. He kneels on the swaying ship, chisels away in the dark. The captain has summoned all hands. Ice has built up along the top deck. They have to chip it off or the weight might make them capsize. His joints ache. Spray, bitter, bitter cold, flecks his face and freezes into his beard. He can't see anyone else. All the lights remain off to make them less of a target for U-boats. He can only hear their chisels ring out into the night. Then, suddenly, a flash. An illuminated gout of water, a roar, the reflection of fire on the waves. One of their convoys been hit. The klaxons begin to sound. Their ship peels off, begins to scatter. He won't die tonight. Their cargo must get through. Welcome to the finest half hour, read by Richard Cutlin, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous help of Wargaming. Today we're going to be talking about one of the most important battles of the European war. It was a battle fought, not over a city or country, but over an ocean. A battle that lasted not days or weeks, but six whole years. It was the longest continuous battle between the Allies and the Nazi forces. Its last action would take place mere hours before the German surrender. It was the Battle of the Atlantic. The battle whose outcome worried Churchill even more than the Battle of Britain. The battle that some argued determined the course of the war. It was the battle for the sea lanes that kept Britain in the war and provided Russia much-needed arms in their most desperate hour. If the battle was lost, the British economy would grind to a halt. Britain was far from self-sufficient. In order to survive, the UK had to import two-thirds of its food, 90% of its copper and aluminium, 95% of its oil, and all of its rubber and chrome. Each week, a million tonnes of goods would have to reach the British Isles across thousands of miles of open ocean, or the UK would be brought to its knees. And the great Soviet bear depended on arms shipped over the Atlantic. Over the course of the war, thousands of tanks and millions of rounds of ammo would be brought from America to be used on the Eastern Front. But they couldn't be brought over the Pacific because of the terms of the Soviet-Japanese neutrality. Soviet ships carrying raw materials, food or arguably non-combat vehicles like jeeps and trucks could cross safely from the United States to the USSR, but they were routinely searched and if any were found to be carrying armaments, they'd be seized at the very least and possibly be used by the Japanese as an excuse to start attacking Russian shipping. So all weapons to support the war on Europe had to pass through Arctic waters of the North Atlantic. December the 13th, 1939. Coastal waters, the South Atlantic. For weeks they'd been hunting the pocket battleship Admiral Graf's Bay. Eleven days ago they got their break. The Doric Star, a merchant ship off the coast of Africa, had sent out an SOS. They were under attack by the Admiral Graf's Bay. The SOS was passed from ship to ship until it got to British squadrons searching for the German warship. Now they lay in ambush. Commodore Henry Harwood, the commander of the flotilla assigned to sink the Graf's Bay, had made a bold decision. 
He guessed that the Graf Spee's next move would be to cross the Atlantic to attack vital supplies coming from South America. So he stationed his fleet in the busier shipping routes off Uruguay and waited. Then, there, smoke on the horizon. It's the Graf Spee. On the Exeter, one of the three cruisers lying in wait, the flag for enemy sighted goes up. It's six in the morning. The roar of the naval guns will mark the dawn. On the Grash Bay, they've spotted enemy ships as well. But just the day before, the only reconnaissance aircraft aboard had broken down. They have to identify the enemy ships by eye. A mistake is made. The British ships are identified as small destroyers guarding a convoy. The order to attack is given. The three British ships, the Ajax, the Achilles and the Exeter, charge in to meet the Grash Bay. They're desperately outgunned by the German pocket battleship, but they know that they don't have to sink her, even if they lose all three ships, so long as they can wound the Spey badly enough to send her back to Germany for repairs. The sacrifice will have been worth it, because the rest of the Royal Navy will finish her off before she can make it home. The Ajax and the Achilles close in from the northeast, while the Exeter attacks from the northwest. Surrounded, the Graf Spee fires to both sides. Shells rip across the Exeter's deck. The torpedo crew is killed to a man. The communication equipment is destroyed. The bridge is riddled with shrapnel. Another shell smashes into one of the guns. But the Exeter fights on. Messengers running orders from the wounded bridge crew down to the engine room. Torpedoes snake out of the cruisers. The Ajax and the Achilles fire shell after shell at the Grash Bay, but to little effect. Then, the pocket battleship scores another hit on the Exeter. All of its guns are out of action. The captain yells, I'm going to ram the bastard. It will be the end of us, but it will sink him too. The order goes out. They start to speed straight for the Grash Bay. But then, word passes along the ship. The electricians had fixed one of the turrets. They still have a gun but they have no electronic communications equipment. The captain races to his last remaining gun and, standing atop the turret, shouts firing instructions to the men in the gun below. One, two more salvos, and then at last the electrical system gives out. The ship is beginning to list badly. Orders come from the Commodore. They're to break off, to try to make it back to port. But the Grash Bay starts to disengage too. One of the shells struck home. They've crippled its fuel system. The pocket battleship is left with only 16 hours of fuel, not nearly enough to make it back across the Atlantic to German repair yards. All night the Ajax and the Achilles chase the stricken Graf Spee until, just after midnight, it drops anchor in the neutral harbour of Montevideo. The captain of the Graf Spee asked the government of Uruguay for two weeks to repair his ship. The British consulate, though, objects demanding that the Graf Spee be ejected from the port at once. Meanwhile, British intelligence agents begin to broadcast reports of a massive fleet gathering outside of Montevideo on radio frequencies they know the Germans are listening in on. At the same time, the few Royal Naval vessels that had actually been able to get to Montevideo are ordered to use smoke to make it seem that there is a whole fleet just over the horizon. Thinking he was trapped, with not enough ammo to fight his way out, the German captain ordered the Graf Spee scuttled, and like that, without the loss of a single ship, 
a third of Germany's pocket battleship fleet is wiped out. While many of us think of the war in the Atlantic as a submarine war, in 1939 the Third Reich had little more than 50 U-boats in total. Many short-range mine layers, not ocean-going attack submarines. No, the beginning of the Battle of the Atlantic was very much a war of surface ships. Upon declaring war on Germany, the Royal Navy had put a stranglehold on German shipping, effectively blockading the continent of Europe. The Kriegsmarine, the Third Reich's navy, was created to challenge Britain's dominance of the seas, but the naval rearmament plan was based around a war starting in 1945, leaving the Kriegsmarine with zero aircraft carriers and only about 25% of the large surface ships the naval staff thought were necessary to oppose the Royal Navy by the time the war broke out. If the German Navy was going to have any effect at all, it wouldn't be through pitch battle with the English fleet. It would be through cutting off Britain's lifeline to the rest of the world. So the ships of the Kriegsmarine were to be commerce raiders, slipping out into the Atlantic and destroying the cargo that Britain relied on to survive. November the 5th, 1940. Open Ocean, North Atlantic. Captain Fagan stands on the deck of the HMS Jarvis Bay, an old merchant steamer hastily refitted to serve as an armed escort for convoys crossing the Atlantic. Right now he's surrounded by 38 cargo ships, which it's his sole duty to protect. On the 28th of October, they had departed Nova Scotia to make the two-week journey to Liverpool. So far, it had been calm sailing. Then there, on the horizon, a silhouette. Minute by minute, it draws closer. It's moving at an incredible speed. He can make out the outline of its bristling guns, giant 11 inches that can fire more than 20 miles. He knows what it is. It's the German pocket battleship, Admiral Scheer. Quietly, to himself, he curses his luck. Then he shouts to the radio operator to broadcast to all ships to scatter. As the convoy breaks off in all directions, he orders smoke to be launched to cover their retreat. But it won't be enough. The Admiral's shear is too fast. He knows his duty. He turns to his crew. Attack! The order goes out. There is no hope of victory. They can't even damage the Admiral's shear with a handful of 19th century guns that have been bolted to their deck. Their job now is to simply buy time for as many of the merchantmen they were guarding as possible to get away. They sail forward to challenge the great warship, firing shells which bounce harmlessly off its armoured frame. The Shears' cannons roar. They try to evade, but 600-pound rounds crash into Jarvis Bay. The radio equipment is destroyed, the steering damaged, the bridge is in ruins. Captain Fagan shouts to fight on, his uniform soaked in blood, his right arm shattered. For 23 minutes they hold the Admiral Shear at bay. 23 precious minutes to fulfil their duty. 23 minutes for their convoy to get away. Captain Fagan was awarded a posthumous Victoria Cross for valour in challenging hopeless odds and giving his life to save the many ships that it was his duty to protect. His actions and that of his crew, though it cost most of them their lives, meant that only five of the 38 ships of the convoy were sunk that their much-needed cargo would arrive on British shores. But their fate also serves to illustrate the United Kingdom's greatest weakness in the Battle of the Atlantic. 
Even the mighty Royal Navy didn't have enough ships to guard the enormous quantity of shipping that Britain required to survive. To ameliorate this, the convoy system was devised. Ships would gather in port and then sail together, dozens at a time, so the few naval resources available could be used to guard a whole group rather than be split among the individual ships. In time, this would prove to be an excellent idea, but in the early years of the war, there was never enough protection, meaning that often these convoys would simply provide ripe targets for German raiding. But even as British shipping losses mounted, one thing started to become clear. The cost was too high. German capital ships like the Admiral Scheer and the Graf Spee were utterly irreplaceable. They took years to build and, frankly, the Third Reich couldn't afford to divert the massive amount of resources required for their construction from the rest of the war effort. So even as great ships of the Kriegsmarine racked up scores of merchant men sunk, on the surface of the Atlantic the Battle of Attrition was being won by the Allies. Yet underneath the waves an entirely different story was playing out. In cramped, claustrophobic shells of iron, German U-boat crews are proving the devastating efficacy of submarine warfare. With their small silhouette, ability to escape if they met with a superior force, and torpedoes that could cripple even the mighty British capital ships, the U-boats were proving a remarkably dangerous foe for the Royal Navy. Karl Dunitz, commander of the submarine fleet, claimed that if he had 300 U-boats, he would be able to force England out of the war. He might have been right. But with the handful that he had at the outset of the war, he could do little more than try to prove to the Fuhrer the value of the submarine. To maximise damage, he introduced the idea of the Wolf Pack. A group of submarines would stretch out in a long line across suspected shipping routes, and, as soon as one of them spotted a convoy, it would radio to the rest, then shadow the convoy while they gathered. Once they were assembled, they'd fall on the convoy tearing it apart. In the first four months of the war, they destroyed 421,000 tonnes of shipping, vastly outstripping the damage done by the surface fleet. By the end of 1940, U-boats would send 2.6 million tonnes of Allied shipping to the ocean floor. These were the happy times for the German U-boat fleet. In 1940, the French Navy was knocked out of the war. Bases in Norway and along the French coast became available to them allowing them to raid much further out to sea and, with Italy's formal entry into the war, part of the Royal Navy had been diverted to the Mediterranean. British anti-submarine tactics and armaments were also in their infancy. Rather than focus solely on protecting convoys, the British would try to hunt submarines, diverting valuable resources to the nearly impossible task of spotting a coning tower in the ocean and neither warships nor merchantmen were adequately outfitted with depth charges or sonar. Submarine losses were light, and victories were frequent, but there just weren't enough submarines to truly push Britain out of the war. May the 20th, 1941, the Baltic. In neutral Sweden, a message gets passed along. Swedish intelligence has spotted a flotilla of German ships heading towards the Atlantic. In Poland, a partisan radios in information. The Bismarck left port a week ago. In Norway, a resistance fighter gets word to his British handlers. A German fleet has been spotted off the Norwegian coast. Reconnaissance planes are sent to scour the fjords. 
Most returned with nothing, but one spots and photographs a giant German ship with a heavy cruiser at its side. The film is rushed back to Scotland, where an analyst identifies the ships. It's the Prince Eugen and the Bismarck. The Bismarck was the largest battleship Germany had ever produced. It was a visible symbol of Nazi might and prestige. It displaced over 40,000 tonnes, took thousands of men to crew it, and yet still could move at a rapid 30 knots. Its armour was more than a foot thick, and its massive 15-inch guns could fire shells weighing 1,800 pounds at targets up to 22 miles away. Almost no British ship could face it toe-to-toe. It was the Admiralty's nightmare. If it got loose in the Atlantic, no shipping would be safe. No escort they could provide would deter it. No defensive screen could stop it. There was only one option, hunt the Bismarck. If they could find it before it got out into the shipping lanes, if they could catch it while it was still close enough to Britain to attack it from the air, to concentrate their forces and send a fleet to sink it, they might have a chance. But that meant finding it. And the weather is against them. Great banks of fog roll across the Norwegian coast. Flight after flight is launched to find the Bismarck, but none of them can see anything through the mist. At last, one daring pilot dies below the fog, the belly of his craft almost touching the waves, and sees nothing. The Bismarck has slipped away in the mist. They have no idea where she is. In the time she's been out of sight, she could have gone 600 miles. Then, a stroke of luck. One of the cruisers searching for the Bismarck emerges from a fog bank, and there, less than seven miles away, is the battleship. The cruiser darts back into the fog. Being spotted at that range by the Bismarck would certainly be fatal. But this cruiser is outfitted with the latest technology, shipborne radar. And so it engages in a desperate cat-and-mouse game, keeping the Bismarck within its 10-mile radar range, yet staying out of sight. The cruiser regularly radios in the Bismarck's position. It's time. The Admiralty orders the ship searching for the Bismarck to coalesce into one mighty fleet. They'll catch the Bismarck in the Denmark Strait. But the weather is getting worse. Snow whips across the decks of the ships. The waves are so high that they come crashing over the guardrails of the destroyers. The seas are too rough. The destroyer escort has to pull back and abandon the pursuit. But the British still have their main force, the Prince of Wales and the HMS Hood. This will be a two-on-two fight, with the pride of the British Navy going up against the finest ships the Germans have to offer. But it won't be an even fight. The British, complying with the naval treaties meant to stop the global naval arms race, have been busy refitting old ships and limiting the armaments on their newer vessels. Meanwhile, the Third Reich, in its construction of the Bismarck, has flaunted these treaties entirely. And so the underarmed Prince of Wales and the refurbished HMS Hood, built during the First World War, sailed towards the fight of their lives. Civilian contractors on the Prince of Wales desperately tried to get the turrets working, which had been malfunctioning since launch while the crew on the hood prepares for the attack. Then, in the early hours of May the 24th, smoke is spotted on the horizon. On the hood, the flagship of the fleet, the commanding officer sends out a hasty message. From hood, 
Enemy in sight, I'm engaging. The Hood and the Prince of Wales make straight for the Bismarck and its escort, the Prince Eugen. This is risky because it means that only their front turrets will be able to be brought to bear. But hopefully the element of surprise will compensate for this disadvantage. The commander of the Hood issues an order for the Prince of Wales to join them in firing on the first ship. But the gunnery officer on the Prince of Wales, having access to more modern optics, comes to a horrifying realisation. The Hood is targeting the wrong ship. Spurning naval convention, the Germans have put their weaker ship, the Prince Eugen, in front. He desperately tries to get this information back to the Hood, but it's no good. So he acts on his own initiative and trains the Prince of Wales' guns on the true target, the Bismarck. Cannons roar. Muzzle flashes light the sky. Then, 50 seconds of terrible uncertainty. 50 seconds for their shells to travel the miles between ships. 50 seconds until they know whether their attack struck home. Then, giant geysers of water erupt in front of the German ships. Their shells have fallen short. The German vessels, now aware of the threat, return fire. One of the shots plunges through the lightly armoured deck of the hood, the one part never refitted after the First World War. A macabre fireworks display begins as an armoury is hit and anti-aircraft shells begin to cook off. The screams of burning men echo through the ship. But the hood fights on, turning to avoid further shells. The Prince of Wales joins the hood in its turn and gets one solid hit in on the Bismarck. But its turrets have begun to malfunction. One by one going out of action. Another round is fired from the Bismarck, then another. They've got the range on the hood. In horror, the crew of the Prince of Wales watches as shells plunge through the hood's deck. For a moment there's nothing, then the centre of the ship just vaporises sending gouts of flame more than a mile into the sky. The stern capsizes. For a few seconds, the front half of the ship glides forward, then it too disappears below the waves. Of the 1,419 members of the crew, only three sailors would survive. The Prince of Wales fights on through. They finally have range on the Bismarck. They just need one more salvo. Then, the stunned captain staggers across the bridge. He looks at the gaping hole in the bridge wall and he looks around him. The deck is awash in blood. Shattered men and equipment, dismembered limbs and mangled machines litter the floor. His entire bridge crew lies dead, save two wounded officers. Shells continue to pound into the Prince of Wales. It's time to sound the retreat. They blanket the water and smoke and make their escape. But as word trickles back about the fate of the hood, fear turns to rage. Prime Minister Churchill calls on the Admiralty to put an order out to every able ship in the Atlantic. Sink the Bismarck. Carriers, battleships, cruisers, even tiny destroyers are deployed. But the Bismarck vanishes. Their quarry is lost. Among their misfortune, though, the British have had one stroke of luck. During the firefight in the Strait of Denmark, one of the shells damaged the Bismarck's fuel tanks. It's leaking oil. It will have to head to France or return to Norway for repairs. They just have to figure out which. 
But as hours pass since last contact, the radius of where the Bismarck could be widens. British intelligence has nothing to offer. Then, at 5pm on the 25th of May, fortune smiles on them again. German naval codes take weeks to decrypt, but Luftwaffe encryption isn't as strong and can be translated almost in real time. A woman working in Bletchley Park's code-breaking division is translating messages when she realises what she has. A high-ranking Luftwaffe officer has sent out a message asking if his son was alright, because he's a sailor on Bismarck, and gotten back the reply that he was fine and that they were safely on their way to Brest. And they've done it all in Luftwaffe code. They have the Bismarck. But there's only one ship close enough to intercept her, the carrier Ark Royal, and she only has a handful of obsolete swordfish biplanes aboard. These slow, antiquated aircraft have a hull made almost entirely of cloth and could carry one, yes, exactly one, torpedo apiece. Nonetheless, they sortie. If the Bismarck can survive another day, she'll be under the cover of the Luftwaffe stationed in France. Now is their only chance. As they approach, flak lights up the evening sky. Shrapnel rips through thin cloth frames and men alike. They fly low, barely above the waves. It's the only advantage the swordfish has. Plane after plane releases their torpedoes, but they either sail wide or explode harmlessly against the Bismarck's thick armour. One of the last pilots is about to fire when he hears his navigator shout, Wait! He looks back. His navigator is hanging off the side of the plane. He's trying to judge the waves to make sure they have the perfect shot. He shouts, Now! The torpedo snakes out. It hits the Bismarck in the stern. There's a massive explosion, but the Bismarck sails on. Bloodied and disheartened, the swordfish crews return to report their failure. But they're met on the deck of the Ark Royal by jubilant men. That shot had damaged the Bismarck's rudder. She was veering off course, away from the French coast. The next morning, the British fleet converges on the wounded ship. For hours, they pound the Bismarck. They fire 2,800 shells before, at last, she starts to sink. Sailors scramble overboard, throwing themselves into the turbulent sea. But it's an incomparable disaster for the Germans. Of the 2,200 men aboard, only 114 will live through the day. Hitler is furious. He's done with surface ships. They have been an embarrassment to the Third Reich, and a costly one at that. He makes the commander of the submarine fleet, Karl Dunitz, the head of the whole navy. A new phase of the Battle of the Atlantic is about to begin. So join us next time for the Enigma and the U-Boat War.